Open your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 45. We study today verses 1 to 5, that is the whole chapter of Jeremiah 45. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, beginning at verse 1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down, what I have planted I am plucking up, that is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we now pray your blessing on Jeremiah 45. We thank you for how extraordinary it's been to study through this great book of scripture. And we pray that you would speak to us today. Baruch is gone. He's with you. But Father, we're here. We need to learn what he learned. Speak your people here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of ancient and medieval manuscripts, one will often find a scribal note, and it will provide details of the production of that particular scroll or book. Now, it's called a colophon, and such a note usually proves very helpful in dating a text. For example, one medieval collection of the Gospels contains at the end this appendix, this divine and sacred tetraevangelion, was completed through collaboration and because of desire and expense of the noble and honored man, Kyrios Nicolaus of Lardia. And then he gives the scribe's name and then the date. That's what they were looking for. That's what's so valuable. The date in the year 6938 from the creation of the world, from the incarnation, 1430. Very helpful in dating a scribe to have a date on it at the end. Now, in some cases, a colophon will do more than that. It'll provide the scribe's circumstances as he produced the scroll and maybe his outlook, like that one colophon that says this at the very end. The hand that wrote this scroll is rotting in the grave, but the words that are written will last until the fullness of time. Well, not only have biblical books been preserved over the centuries by studious scribes doing their labors, but the original production of many, if not most, of the Bible books involved professional writers. And of all the books of the Bible, Jeremiah, it turns out, provides the most detailed information regarding its literary production, how it got from the preaching of Jeremiah to the written text that we have today, all centering on the role of his able and courageous assistant, Baruch, the son of Neriah. Now, it's interesting to learn that there are actually two versions, two different productions of Jeremiah. One is Egyptian, and that made its way into the 3rd century B.C. Greek translation called the Septuagint, 
so often quoted by the apostles. It's actually the official church of the Eastern Orthodox churches. That's one version of Jeremiah. Then there's the Babylonian version, which found its way into the Masoretic text, into the Hebrew Bibles, and into our English Bibles. We have the Masoretic text version, the Babylonian version. You go, oh, what's the difference? Well, there's no contradiction. It's just that the Egyptian version is shorter. About an eighth of the text is not found in the Egyptian version, and there's a rearranging of some of the material, particularly the woes against the nations. Now one theory holds that after producing the final version of Jeremiah in Egypt, it seems clear that's what happened. This colophon shows that they put a production together at the very end. But it seems that afterwards Baruch would have traveled to Babylon and he would have had the resources to do so. And he produced a second version of Jeremiah there, probably on the prophet's own instructions. Now, one reason for thinking that is that the largest part of Jeremiah missing from the Egyptian version is chapter 29, the letter to the Babylonian exiles. And so it's, it's uncertain. But I think a very plausible theory is that Jeremiah sent Baruch to Babylon. Because remember, that's where the main exiles were. He wanted this record not only for those in Egypt, but for the Babylonian exiles. He sends Baruch and he has him include the letter to the exiles that is so essential to the book that we have read. Well, given all of that, it is only appropriate that Baruch, of all scribes, would have the privilege of a colophon. And that's what we have in chapter 45. Chapter 44, our last study, was the end of Jeremiah's ministry. You have the oracles against the nation to follow. There's a wrap-up chapter in chapter 52. And then the appendix, the, the, the scribal colophon, is chapter 45. And it records the scribe's personal struggle with the material he was recording in this book. And he also records Jeremiah's ministry to him. And the Lord's consoling reply. And Christopher Wright describes Baruch as one of the very important, unimportant people in the Bible. I like how he puts that. And the Lord's care in responding to his lament reminds us that there are no unimportant people to the Lord. He knows all of his servants. He knows their hearts. He cares about what they're going through, even those little notice in the world. And he challenges us all to live in the light of his glory to live for his great saving work in Jesus Christ. Well, Baruch is putting the touches, finishing touches on Jeremiah in chapter 45, and he takes us back to the year 605 B.C. That's at least 17 years earlier, probably about 20 years earlier. Verse 1 says, it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. So after Jeremiah had so many flashbacks, he gets to have his. And of course, that year was the decisive event. We remember, that's when wicked king Jehoiakim took the scroll of, of Jeremiah and he cut it into pieces and he cast it contemptuously into the fire. And that was it. It was a decisive moment for Judah, but also for Baruch personally. He was having a personal crisis while that was going on through the strain. And years later now, he's in Egypt after Jerusalem's fall, and he looks back on this experience as a defining moment in his role in terms of producing the book of Jeremiah. It also was the one time that we know of when the Lord provided a revelation personally to him. Well, in the midst of his great strain as Jeremiah's assistant, he cries out in lament back in 605, 
Verse 2, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. Now, verse 1 locates this breakdown as occurring while he was writing the scroll of Jeremiah, or as some translations put it, after he had completed it. And you remember chapter 36 is where he's located now. The Lord had instructed Jeremiah to have Baruch write down all that he had said on a scroll. All the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. Jeremiah 36 verse 2. Now Jeremiah was called to prophesy in 627 BC. It's now 605 BC. So that's 22 years of prophetic activity. It's roughly, I'm pretty sure it's Jeremiah 1 to 25. The first 25 books of the chapter. If you remember, that was mostly in the time of Josiah. That's the early half of Jeremiah's ministry. And so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah dictates it all. These are the the sermons he preached. These are the things that happened. But now, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Baruch's going to sit at his desk, and Jeremiah's going to speak the words. He's going to write them all down. It's an interesting vignette of biblical inspiration. Now, this would have taken weeks they didn't knock this out over a weekend this would have taken place perhaps over months and it concludes in chapter 25 with jeremiah's recently given prophecy about the exile of judah and its 70 year stay in babylon well as baruch is copying this all down faithfully his heart and his mind are fully engaged and he becomes more and more distressed He's depressed by the accusations against God's covenant-breaking people and then the detailed, terrible judgment that God is pronouncing against the sinful nation. And he is experiencing an inner trauma. And remember, for Baruch, Jeremiah is not just one of many Old Testament books. It's not just a collection of sayings from some time long ago. No, it was his time. It was his people. It was his nation on the brink of absolute doom. And nothing, this is what's recorded in chapters 1 to 25, nothing Jeremiah says or does makes any difference. Why? Because they're so hardened in unbelief and idolatry. They're under the judgment of God. And so you have this, really, remember chapter 7, chapter 9, just these great moments and 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 the people will not relent no matter what the lord is doing through jeremiah and it depresses the scribe as a result he knows it's his neighbors it's his family members it's the city it's not just a city it's his hometown the great jerusalem that's going to be destroyed and he he knows what's going to happen and so he cries out, woe. He, he, what he does here is he adds his own woe to the many woes of the prophet. And I think surely what's happening is he's under the spiritual and emotional influence of Jeremiah, who's not called the weeping prophet for nothing. And how often Jeremiah had broken down before the Lord and Baruch is with him and now he's entered into the same experience And he's writing it all down. And no doubt he remembers when they happened. He remembers that sermon. He remembers the great opportunity that was lost. And as he's recording it, he he laments with great woes. And I think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount who said, Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Matthew 5, verse 4. It was right 
for Baruch, not just to kind of automatically write the book of Jeremiah at dictation, but he laments the unbelief and idolatry and, and the judgment that is swooping down upon them he, he, in the spirit of Jesus, who likewise wept over the same city, Jerusalem, before they crucified him. It wasn't what was going to happen to him, it was what's going to happen to them. See, your city is left to you desolate. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, you reject the word of God. That was Jesus' lament. You know, we might think, you know, one of the reasons we don't want to buy in fully to the church and the work of the gospel and witnessing and the missionary labors is how much it's going to hurt. And you know what? It is. And there's going to be weariness and lament over what seems to be fatiguing, vain labor and ministry. But Jesus says that Baruch was blessed to mourn over sin and its consequences. Just last week, I wasn't here last week, I was preaching at a conference in East Lansing, Michigan, and we had a Q&A, and there was an older minister, 85-year-old Jeffrey Thomas, one of the greats of, of Welsh Reformed Baptist heritage, and I'd never met him, and it was great. We did a Q&A, and one of the questions was, uh, you know, what do you do if you should find yourself just inwardly grieving over the state of the loss. And it was a rebuke to everyone when 85-year-old Jeff Thomas says, I hope you don't mean that any of us are not grieving over the state. What do you mean, if we're mourning? He goes, of course we're mourning, but but are we? we We're hardened to it. We're used to the news cycle. We're used to despair. People are, are streaming towards eternal death, and we do not even grieve. Jesus says, no, it's better it's better to, yes, to suffer, the, to make the sacrifice involved in ministry, but then the emotional lament of those who are deeply committed. Baruch was one of them. Woe is me, he cries. He's weeping with sorrow over sin and looming judgment. And it wasn't merely fleeting. Look at verse 3. I am weary with my groaning. He's been losing sleep over this. He's been wearing himself out in prayer the way that brokenhearted parents will expend themselves spiritually for a child who's walked away from the faith. And the the process for Baruch of writing out the book of Jeremiah, chapters 1 through 25, it taken all that he had to give. And perhaps he anticipated what was going to happen. By the way, it's this scroll that he's writing that Jehoiakim chops up into pieces. And he, he expects it to happen. And it's just, it's, just, it's just grievous to him because of the implication. This is a king of Judah. These are the people of Judah. He knows what's going to happen. What's interesting is he turns to the book of Psalms. Now, why do I say that? I always advise Christians, if, if you're struggling emotionally, and, and we will sometimes, with grief or anxiety or trouble, the Psalms is the emotional connection. You'll find every emotion you're dealing with in the book of Psalms, and the Lord will meet you there. And it seems pretty sure that's what he did because he's quoting in verse 3 from Psalm 6, verse 6. David said, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. And the setting of Psalm 6 was one of personal danger to danger. So probably Baruch's also afraid as well he might have been. He knew that his service was endangering his life. And so he says, the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. See, he knew the Lord could change the situation. So why wasn't he doing so? That, that's the lament of Baruch. 
Now, Baruch is looking back, remember, on this desperate time in his life. And it's not the sorrow itself he so much remembers, but the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah to him in his anxiety. Look at verse 1. The colophon contains the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, out of concern for the lament that Jeremiah was aware of. And so Baruch had expressed his lament to the prophet. And he, he, in fact, they, they appear in our chapter as Jeremiah saying to him, this is what you said. Now that means that Jeremiah had been praying for his devoted servant. Jeremiah had heard the lament of Baruch. They talked about it and he went to the Lord. And he asked for a special revelation from God for his servant Baruch and also the comfort that God might give. And the Lord answered that, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. He had a message from God because he'd asked for it. Now isn't that touching, I think? It really is touching to see Jeremiah's pastoral concern and care for his scribe and companion. You know, we think of Old Testament prophets and and these titanic men bearing incredible burdens or dealing with the greatest issues uh, of humanity and the world but and that's true of jeremiah but it hadn't dehumanized him he hadn't lost his ability to notice the struggle of the guy who works for him can we notice those things and and to spiritually encourage individuals around him And of course, Jeremiah knew a thing or two about this. Jeremiah 12 to 20, which is part of that, is called the Confessions of Jeremiah, and that's his prayers of despair. In chapter 20, remember that he learned that his family had taken a contract out on him. Remember that? He was a stain on the family armor, so his brothers had hired a murderer, and the Lord breaks this news to him, and Jeremiah doesn't handle it well. He curses the day in which he was born. He's utterly desolate. And so he knows what it's like, and he has the ability to minister to Baruch. I I think of Jeremiah's ministry to his servant here in terms of one of my favorite Old Testament verses, 1 Samuel uh, 23, 16. It describes Jonathan's ministry to David in a time of David's despair. Jonathan's one of my favorite people in all the Bible. And David, it's at the end of the rope for David. King Saul, Jonathan's father, has been chasing him for years, and he's pretty much got David cornered. And David's in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, I could tell you about the wilderness of Ziph, but just saying it tells the story. It ain't good. He's in the wilderness of Ziph, and he's at the end of his rope. And at that time, Jonathan, his covenant friend, leaves his father. He goes into the wilderness of Ziph. He finds David, and 1 Samuel 23, 16 says, he strengthened his hand in God. Don't you love that expression? I love it. That's what we need from other people, from one another. That's what Jeremiah does to Baruch. He doesn't doesn't solve all his problems. He doesn't say, oh, no, don't worry about it. What do you mean, don't worry about the book of Jeremiah? No, he strengthens his hand in God. He ministers to him to strengthen the faith that Baruch really needs. That's the best thing we can do. And he does so with prayer and the word of God. In fact, in 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan ministers to David with a promise from God. Don't forget, God has promised that you're going to win. That should help you. I'm going back to dad now. That was basically his ministry. 
And God also will strengthen us through promises. You think if you have a dear friend who's lost a loved one, sometimes it just crushes our spirit. And it doesn't take away the grief, but it makes a difference to be reminded that Jesus has promised, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Yes, that makes a difference. One of my favorite verses for those who are anxious about the troubles of the world is 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. And the word of God says to you, O troubled soul, now you can pray to the Lord because he, he cares for you. The word of God promises God cares for you. And the promises of the Bible belong to each believer as surely as this promise from Jeremiah belonged to Baruch. And so Jeremiah's ministry was effective because not only did he care about Baruch, and, and he, he did the things that we can do, he prayed for him and he read the Bible to him. That's what he did. But the reason it worked was that God also cared. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the comfort in this chapter primarily comes from God. Yes, it's a message Jeremiah delivered, but it comes from the Lord. Look at verse 4. The Lord told Jeremiah, Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down. What I have planted I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And the Lord had enough time, enough interest to provide a message for Baruch. Do you feel, I know that Christians feel this way, that God may know about and care enough about, you know, really important Christians, but I'm just not important enough. Well, I remember in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, when Jesus is passing through Jericho, I think the next day, it's either the next couple of days or the next day, is Palm Sunday. So Jesus has, you know, the cross on his mind. He's a little preoccupied, or we'd think he would be. And he hears out of this crowd, there's a voice of one man, blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy. And one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of Mark is Mark 10, 49, Jesus stopped. Jesus heard the cry of one believer, one believer in affliction, and he stopped. He stopped for you too. He hears your cry. You go, how can he stop? Well, having the attributes of deity are very helpful. And he has them. And he can uphold all things. And he can give you the whole of his attention. And he does. He hears your cry. Jesus stopped. Psalm 121, 3 to 4 says, Behold, God neither slumbers nor sleep, but he watches over Israel. He cares for you. And so here's Baruch. He'd been painstakingly inscribing all the words of Jeremiah 1 to 25, most of which is doom and destruction. Remember some of those early chapters? It was pretty gnarly and it's not very pleasant and it's all real. And I want you to notice as the Lord consoles him, the Lord doesn't downplay it. He doesn't soften the blow. He doesn't pull back about judgment. No, it's true. What he says is found in verse 4. Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. So the Lord wants to settle Baruch in the, in, the, in the true fact, the reality, this is God's sovereign plan. He needs to come to grips with this. But the emphasis, seen more clearly in the Hebrew text than the English, 
is on God's own investment. Baruch is invested in this situation. It's crushing him. And the Lord says, Baruch is not the only one. It is what I have built that now I'm tearing down. It's what I have planted that I'm plucking up. In fact, I think the, the Hebrew text could be read this way. Behold what I have built up, even I, I am breaking down. What I have planted, even I, I am plucking up. And of course, Baruch wrote the Hebrew text. He would have noted the grammatical instruction. And he's lamenting under the awareness that these people, he's lived among them all his life and they're about to be destroyed. But how much longer has the Lord lived in the midst of these people? And so the Lord speaks about breaking down what I have built, plucking what I have planted. And in doing so, he summarizes generations of offered grace, generations of God's saving work that's been refused and rejected by a people who insisted on sin and idolatry. John Guest writes, when God plucked up Jerusalem, he wasn't destroying a lifetime of work, but ages and eons of work. Christopher Wright puts it this way, for these words of God condense a thousand years or more of patient building and planting of people from their improbable beginnings in the geriatric loins and womb of Abraham and Sarah now to the shattering prospect of seeing all that loving handiwork, all that investment in people and the land for the sake of his saving work violently ripped to pieces. And so knowing what it will cost the Lord to fulfill the promises of judgment, which which Baruch has been writing about, are designed to give him perspective in his sorrow. John Mackay puts it this way, before Baruch becomes overwhelmed with grief at the situation he finds himself in, let him remember what is involved for the Lord. And yet let's not think of the Lord as that kind of person who, who responds to all of your trials with greater ones. Oh, if that happened to you, that's nothing. Oh, I've experienced. And what they religious, they just don't care about you. That's not what God's doing here. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He's not minimizing Baruch. You spent a lifetime, I've spent a millennium. That's true. What he's actually doing is he's joining Baruch in his lament. Or, or rather, he's inviting the sorrowful scribe into the deeper wells of God's sorrow for the sin and the judgment and the destruction of his chosen people. Uh, Here we have a perspective on God's judgment and wrath that we rarely consider. God does not hide the painful truth of judgment even from himself, his own tender heart. Yes, I think we're fully justified. And speaking of God's tender heart, feels sorrow for sin and his own wrath more deeply than we could ever imagine. You know, sometimes the best thing we can do, sometimes the only thing we can do for just bereaved friends is just to be with them and to shed our tears with their tears and just to hold hands and just to be together in mourning. And that's what the Lord gives Baruch. He shares his own tears for the people to whom he offered life, but they were determined to have death. Well, the Lord often uses times of lament like this to enlarge our capacity for sorrow and sympathy and concern over sin and evil. 
But he also uses trial, and this is where he goes at the end of the passage. He uses trials to reveal things about ourselves that we may not have known or we've ignored. Let me give you an example. It comes from the experience of Wing Mang Dao, who was Wang, Wang Ming Dao, who was one of the great Chinese leaders of the 20th century. David Aikman, in his book Jesus in Beijing, observes how Wang was the great evangelist in the in the 40s and the 30s and 40s who led thousands of, of believers to saving faith and he was an inspiration to pastors and that's why the Chinese communist government isolated him and they, they arrested him because he would not agree to affiliate his church movement with the official state church, the corrupt three-self patriotic movement. By the way, that's still going on today. The house church movement and its faithfulness to this day is persecuted because they won't come under government control, as they shouldn't. They won't join the three-self patriotic movement. And in 1955, Wang Mandao is arrested for this. And everybody's going, oh, this is going to be great. They've arrested the wrong guy. And we're going to see what happens when Mao Zedong faces off with Wang Mandao. Well, it did not go well. Because Wang was not as strong as he thought he was going to be. And look, they, they planted cellmates with him who they put there to talk about torture. And to give details. By the way, they arrested his wife. And they talked about the torture of, of the women Christians. Whether they were doing it or not. They were manipulating him. He's alone. He's fatigued. And he cracks. And he, he lets it be known, you know, I'm, I'm kind of rethinking my position. And before long, they cut him a deal. Okay, Wang, if you will confess your crimes against the state, and if you will endorse the, the state corrupt church, they didn't call it corrupt, but it is, um, then you can go. And so he does. He signs all the documents, and he's set free. But he's miserable. He's actually seen in the, in the late 1950s wandering the streets of Beijing, muttering to himself. Imagine running into Billy Graham years ago and he's disheveled and he's muttering. What Wang Mingdao was muttering was, I am Peter. I am Peter. And he meant Peter who betrayed his Lord. And he thought he'd lost it all. But, but there was a spark left because they came to him and they said, oh, Wang, don't forget, you promised you're going to attend the state church. And he said, no, I'm not. I, I, that I cannot do. I cannot go to a false church. And so they arrested him again. And he, they put him, they give him a life sentence. And, and it's when he, here's what I'm getting with this. It's in that second imprisonment when he's wrestling with his failure in the whole situation, he realizes that one of the things, there's a lot of things going on, but one of them is the Lord had been showing him that he had been proud. He'd relied on his own will, the strength of his will. And that will was easily, oh, that was easily broken. And in one moment of despair and personal shame, the words of Micah chapter 7, 7 to 8 came to his mind. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Isn't that extraordinary? This great evangelist needed to discover in a personal way the mercy of God on which he could utterly rely through his failure in prison. Well, Wang underwent over 20 years of intense imprisonment, including a fair amount of abuse, and this time he did not break. He was relying on the saving grace of God, and he was an inspiration to that generation. One of the reasons why the church did not break, did not give in, was the example 
of men like Wang Mindao, Paul said, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Now, what the Lord revealed to Baruch was something different, but something like that. I tell that story because that's what's going on with Baruch. And in his case, the problem wasn't pride. It wasn't self-reliance. It was earthly ambition. Look at verse 5. Here's the message. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. And again, we're going to set that statement in the context of 605 BC because not only did Baruch have to inscribe the scroll with the message of Jeremiah's ministry, but as we learn in Jeremiah 36, 5 to 6, he had to actually take the scroll that for months he and Jeremiah had been preparing, Jeremiah 1 to 25, it's a big scroll. He has to take it to the temple because Jeremiah is kicked out of the temple by now. And he has to read before the crowds on a feast day all these denunciations from the prophet Jeremiah. He has to do so publicly. That's not it. Then he has to go to the palace carrying the big scroll with him. And he has to, it would take a long time to do it. Imagine reading aloud Jeremiah 1 to 25. And now he's going to read it in the, before the officials of the king. You see, what this means is that his career ambitions are toast. It's over. You know, he's from a, we know, we've learned earlier, he's from a a prominent family. He's a wealthy man. He's a noble. He has a brother who's a high official in the king's court. It'd be like having a brother who works at the White House or the State Department. And what we discover here, what the Lord does in his trial, and, and don't we experience this? He says, you know, Baruch, there's things you may not even know about yourself. You may not admit it about yourself, but I want to point it out to you that in your case, it's not just because you're worried about sin and judgment and you love your people, is that you have wanted fame. You've wanted high position. You've wanted influence. You've wanted success in a worldly sense and you are real this is this is at least in part o baruch why you can't sleep at night and you're wearied is because the cost of obedience is undermining your faith that's exactly what's going on here and we, you know it's one thing for him to be seen with jeremiah But now when he writes the scroll, he takes it to the temple, he preaches all those sermons. Now he's the preacher. He goes to the palace. He is now the confederate of the most despised and traitorous man in the nation. He sought great things in the world, and now he was not going to be able to have them. That is what he was in part burdened about. Here's what the Lord's saying. Let me give you some help here, Baruch. You want to get a good night's sleep in the midst of this affliction? You want to be relieved of your suffering? Let it go. Let the great things, let the ambitions go. And then your weary groaning could end. Now, now let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with a Christian having worldly ambition. On On the whole, it's a good thing for young men and young women to say, I want to do something with my life and I need to make money. I want to provide a good life for my children. Nothing wrong with that at all. I want to be able to support the church and and missions. I want to do things and and I've got gifts. I want to use them. This is not a criticism of that. What it is saying is that we need to hold all those ambitions lightly while we hold the will of God tightly. That's what's going on with Jeremiah or with, with Baruch. I think it's so relevant today as Christians find ourselves increasingly in a parallel situation. And let me just ask the question, how willing are we in the corporate workplace 
to go along with and maybe even to affirm, maybe even to approve and to speak things that we know are lies. You know how it is. It's about gender and sexuality and identity and it's destroying our culture. But if we, if we, if we don't sign that statement, if we don't attend the sensitivity training and give the right answers, then we, Pastor, I could lose a promotion. And so we're living in a time when darkness descending and the Christians are putting bushels over their lights because we seek great things. We seek promotions. We seek the, the, the wealth that will give us a certain lifestyle. Let me change the situation. Will we, on the other hand, because we want a wife, we want a husband, and so we'll succumb to sexual sin because, you know, that's just what you have to do. No, it's not what you have to do, but that's what the world says. Will we retreat into a private Christianity, preserving status, friendships, job, affluence, and bearing no gospel witness before our generation? Well, Jesus spoke of this subject. He spoke of counting the cost of being his disciple. He compared it to a landowner who wants to build a tower and let him reckon the cost beforehand. Listen to what Jesus said at the end. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke fourteen thirty three. He's not saying that you're going to lose everything, but it's all got to be on the table. That's so what he said. If you want to be my disciple, take up the cross. It's an implement of death. And then he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses or forfeits himself? Luke 9, 24 to 25. You see, the, the question is that of priority, the earthly or the eternal And Jesus advises trust in God for both of them. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6, 33. Lord's going to take care of you. You may not get the penthouse, but you'll have a place to stay. Seek Seek his kingdom first and his righteousness. Well, it was Baruch's lot to live in a time when the foundations were breaking so that those who thought great things were not likely to get them. But through faith in the Lord, what he would receive is life. And that's how this ends. Look at verse 5. Behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. He's speaking about his judgment on that generation. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. And he would travel far and wide. He's in Egypt now. I think it's virtually certain that he ends up in Babylon. And much would be lost. Many perils would be endured, but the Lord would spare him. He was like a soldier in an army that's been destroyed in battle. They've been crushed by judgment, but he will survive. He will receive his life. And God did preserve Baruch's life. And through his faith, he endured, he entered into the eternal life that is with the Lord through faith. Well, that is what God promises each of us who believe. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Through the trials of our time, God will give us eternal life. Well, let me conclude by saying it in the light of God's word, Baruch came to understand two important truths, and that's what's in this colophon. One truth was that his life was important to God. So's yours. And God took the time 
He's not a prophet. He's, they, they could have hired some other scribe, although he was needed. But the Lord cared enough about him. His life was important to God, though others thought it insignificant. That's one truth he learned. But here's another truth he learned, that his ambition was not important to God. His plan A for his life was not important to God. No, that's not what mattered. And he needed to, to, to lay it down at God's feet. What mattered to him, what matters for us, was his willingness to play that role that God had assigned to him in his time. And so now in chapter 45, he's looking back at the end of Jeremiah's ministry on this defining time in his own experience, the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. And I think you see satisfaction in the Lord's blessing because he had summoned the faith and the courage to finish that scroll and then to carry it down to the temple. And we learn in chapter 36, he did preach the sermon. And then when summoned, he took it again to the palace and he read the whole thing again knowing what was happening. And then he skedaddled and he and Jeremiah went into hiding, which is how that chapter ended, because they were going to be killed otherwise. And he did that. He did it courageously through faith. And my friends, we also... If we will lay down our lives at the feet of Jesus Christ, if we will hold loosely our plans, if we will realize that my life is important to God, but my ambitions for my life are not important to God, then we will have the courage to serve him in trying times. Because important things are happening today that ordinary Christians are called to. The church is worshiping and gathering disciples. The gospel is going out near and far and sinners are believing in Jesus and being forgiven their sin and the day of final judgment is rapidly approaching every person who lives now or ever has lived. And destinies are being decided now through either faith or unbelief that then will forever be revealed in either heaven or hell. That's what's going on. Christopher Wright comments, Baruch reminds us that the lives of ordinary and unimportant people can be greatly significant for God. But the question we need to ask is this, where and how do my life, my gifts, my abilities, my ambitions, my dreams, where do they find their proper place within the greater agenda of the Lord? Well, one place we may look for inspiration as we answer those questions is Baruch's colophon. The scribal note appended to the great record of the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet. But let me close with, I think, an even more inspiring place, and it's the garden where our Savior Jesus got on his knees and he prayed before the Father because he was faced with a far more dreadful choice than we will ever endure Would God's son surrender everything so that his people might live? For Jesus to obey meant the anguish of the cross, the cruel injustice, the wrath of his father and separation from his love. Well, Jesus gave his answer. And as we are aware of what he answered, we will see it a privilege for us to do the same in gratitude to his name. He said, Father, not my will but your will be done. Father in heaven, we thank you for this little chapter, this, little, this record of how you dealt with this man because he's so much like us in, in one way or another and causes, Father, to rejoice that whatever happens to us because of Jesus, we have eternal life. And may we hold 
our plans loosely while we hold your will tightly. And may we surrender our lives in service to you, that you would use, yes, us, us collectively, us individually, that Jesus would have glory through the salvation of sinners who hear and believe. We pray this in his name. Amen.